Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field, along with contest winners and a few surprise guests. Today, we are speaking with Nedia Korfor. You were originally published here in Writers of the Future, Volume 18, as a published finalist, and that's at least 10 years ago. Yeah, more than that. <laughs> yeah, well, well, more than that. And then you became a judge in 2013, and that's where you wrote your uh, first essay as well for Rise to Future on the sport of writing, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But first, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Great. So this is something I've been looking forward to for a while. We've been uh, off and on getting this, this interview done and scheduled since uh, um, sometime last year. Just your yeah. life has been so crazy. So before we talk about the current crazy... All right, you made it, you made it. Okay, good. So um, first of all, tell me about how you got started as a writer, and I know you had sports, and that all ties in, so. Yeah, uh, it's a long story, I'm gonna try to, because, okay, so I didn't start writing until I, until I was about 20, 19, 20 years old. And uh -huh. so it wasn't, I wasn't one of the, one of those writers who started writing, you know, who knew they were going to be a writer. I was right. not, I was probably the near opposite of that. You know, I was very much an athlete. Um, I played semi-pro tennis from the age of nine um, to 19. And, mm -hmm. and I also was a track star as well. Both of my parents were athletes as well. So I come from I come from athletes and also right. both of my parents were doctors. So, you know, the idea of literature and going into the arts is unheard of in my family. <laughs> and so like, you know, I, I grew up thinking that I was going to study bugs. I, I loved, I wanted to be an entomologist. I love bugs. I just do. And, um, you know, I was known, I was known for that. And, you know, my strong areas in school were the sciences and math. So yeah, you know, <laughs> would not have guessed that I'd be doing what I'm doing, but I did love reading. That was the one thing I did love reading. That mm -hmm. was, I, if something had a good story, whether it was nonfiction, whether it was fiction, any kind of, any kind of story, um, I was, <laughs> any kind of story, you know, I was drawn to it. And so that was always like when I wasn't on the tennis court or when I wasn't on the track, you know, I was reading books. I was in the li especially the library. I was just consuming books in the library. Um, so, so that was the only hint, you know, that I would go on to do what I was doing. So yeah, um, I, m my life was tennis, especially like I did track and field in my senior year in high school, but my life was tennis from a young age. And that's how I got to see the United States and everything. And, um, around the age of 13, I was, I was of average height until the age of 13 where, I grew a lot in a very short period of time. It's in like six months. I went from average height to tall. And so, um, and so at, at 13, I was diagnosed with scoliosis, which is the curvature of the spine, which is very common. Mm -hmm. um, but my scoliosis was really severe. A lot of it had to do, the doctors think it had to do with genetics and then also me growing very fast at that time period, but also my tennis game, which was dominated by my, my the right side of my body because mm -hmm. I had like a, powerful serve, powerful forehand. Those are both of my weapons. And so um, as the years progressed, it got progressively worse very quickly and really like severe, like my curvature was very severe. And so by the time I was a, a freshman in college, 
thinking I was going to study entomology. I was at the University of Illinois, which is a great entomology school. Um, they did an x-ray and they were like, look, if you don't, and I was on the tennis team as well. If you don't have surgery to straighten this out, straighten out your spine, you are going to be crippled by the time you're 25 and you're going to have a significantly shorter life because all of your organs are going to be compressed by gravity because gravity is slowly, because my spine was like in an S and the yeah. gravity is just going to bring it down. And so, you know, they, they said that there was, you know, because of anything that de deals with the spine, there's always a risk of paralysis you know, you're dealing with the spine. So they said there was a 1% chance and that's very small. And um, so, you know, 1% chance versus 100% chance of being crippled, I really didn't have much of a choice. Right. Went in the surgery and woke up paralyzed from the waist down. So I, I was in that 1% of people who responded to the surgery randomly. And that was the moment. Because for me, like up until that time, I was very much a physical person. I could run faster than everybody. I could jump higher. I could do flips. So I was flexible. I could, you know, just, it was like, it was like a superpower. You know, mm -hmm. I was always the athlete, always. That was my identity. It was natural. It wasn't like, I barely had to train, you know? So, and then take that person, put them in a hospital bed and make them unable to walk where they can't, not even can't walk, but can't move. And so that was like a catalyst for me. It was a moment where I just went, I knew I could either go into a really dark place or just find something to help myself pull myself out of it. And the thing that I found were stories. You know, it was in that moment, sitting in that hospital bed, that I just started writing these stories. And to make a long story short, that was, <laughs> pun intended, um, <laughs> that was like what, writing those stories, like learning how to just kind of, that act of creating, that mm -hmm. act of creating something from, from nothing almost. Um, that was what pulled me out. And that was also a discovery. Like I discovered storytelling while sitting paralyzed in a hospital bed. Wow. And I haven't stopped writing since. It just, it was like discovering the thing that you love. Like I had never, I didn't even know it was there until that dark, dark, dark moment. So that was really how I started writing because I haven't stopped writing since. Wow, and how many, how, when you submitted and you were published in Writers of the Future, volume 18, how many stories have you written by this point? Because this one here, you, it, it was Wind Seekers. Yeah, Wind Seekers. Um, so I wrote the, my first story that, when I returned to U of I, walking with a cane, and then I took, the next semester I took a, creative writing class and that opened everything up and I started writing stories from then. But I spent several years, several years just writing and writing and writing for myself. I wasn't showing anyone what I was writing. I think I wrote before, by the time I got to Windseekers, Windseekers was the result, that world and those characters was the result of, actually the first story that I wrote, the very first story that I wrote in the hospital bed, before I even knew I was write, creative writing. I didn't even know the term mm -hmm. was the character in Windseekers. Wow. Character in, because the first story that I wrote was about a woman who could fly. Yeah. And that was her. That was her. Yeah. The um, Arroyo. That was her. Yeah. So it's weird. Oh, like, cool. she evolved. It, it is cool because she evolved over time. Like, I was writing about her for a long time. Like, before I even knew what a, like I didn't know structure for story I didn't know what creative writing was I didn't know that I was writing fiction I was just drawing from non I was drawing from 
stories around me that I'd heard things that were coming from within because like the character in that story, she can fly. And when you think about it, the, like I'm writing the first character that I wrote while sitting paralyzed in a hospital that could fly. That means she didn't have to walk, yeah. you know? So like, yeah, that character is very special to me. She evolved a lot over time. And by the time she made it into that story, I had like written about her in that world several times, several times. So yeah, yeah. She was the first character that I wrote. Yeah. Wow. That's great. That's great. That so, <laughs> yeah. So then, um, I mean, we were in communication quite a bit between when you, when I met you originally, when you came out to Hollywood. So before I go on to like follow up with that, what was it like that week when you were out here? I'm, the one picture we've got all over the places with you with Tim Powers and um, yeah. how was it? That was uh, an interesting time. That was, um, that time period was pivotal for me because there were two things. There was uh, Writers of the Future and then it's so interesting. I'm like putting it all together now. Windseekers, I wrote Windseekers in the Clarion Writers Workshop. And like that workshop was not long, like the, the time period between the workshop and the Writers of the Future Week was small. And um, the, that workshop was pivotal and Writers of the Future Week and that workshop were pivotal to me um, as a writer because at that point I was, let me see if I was, I was either working on my master's in, um, I was either, I was either working on my second master's in English. I had just gotten my master's in journalism and then I had my BA that I'd gotten in, in, uh, in creative writing at University of Illinois. So I'd come up through academia and mm -hmm. And throughout academia, I was told that what I was writing was wrong, like, like that, you know, writing fantasy, like fantastical things and mystical things was not what I was supposed to be doing. I was supposed to be writing literary, literary fiction. That was the real literature. What I was writing, I was told by professors that I love that this was not real literature. So at that time I was, you know, and I've always written what I'm going to write. Like nobody, just nobody can stop me from doing that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm just, I, at that point I was just like, what? I was trying to figure out why I'm, I'm having professors telling me these things. And then I took the Clarion, then I went to Clarion and then Writers of the Future. So those two things were the, were the events where, that introduced me to other writers of speculative fiction. So there's that. Also, they just kind of, it was the first time where I got to be around groups of people who were doing this stuff and it was okay and it was normal and it was good. It was, so that was, so when I came to um, that writers of the future week, that was what I like, I was just absorbing all of that because I was just coming out of academia where I was told over and over that this was wrong. And then you know, like, here I am, you know, one in Hollywood, that was like my first time in LA ever. So there was that. And then I'm around all these really amazing writers, like brilliant writers, some, of course, the, the instructors who were highly published, and then the, the winners who, a lot of which were also like, just, you know, knew what they were doing far more than I did. So it was, and then the illustrators as well. So it was just, it was mind blowing to me because like I hadn't encountered that circle yet. Right. Like that was my first time encountering that circle and I needed that. And I, did, I didn't know how much I needed it until I was there. Right. So yeah, that was a really 
um, that week was was eye opening, but also it was like a time where I could where I just came to really accept what I was doing and and in a good way, in a good way. Now, several winners have talked about before how the acceptance is being a writer. They were able to like finally get over that hump that the am I good enough? Am I good enough? And it's like you've got all the, the best of the best telling you, yes, you're good enough is, um, is enough to kind of like kick you up to the next level. Yeah. 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 And that was like uh, and I didn't come there. I always come into these things not expect. I don't I had no expectations because. Like all of it was new to me. I had noise. So I just came and I was just like, what? There's a red carpet. And then I think, what's his name from uh, Lord of the Rings was there. Yeah. And I'm like, what? And then it was just, and then the, and then, you know, Tim Powers and all of these, these science fiction writers, like highly published science fiction writers are there and they're just hanging out and it's all cool. And like the, the workshops were, the workshops were different than the workshops that I had experienced in um, within academia, they were different. They were like, um, and it, it like, I'm not putting down academia at all, but like there was an angle that they were coming at storytelling that was different from academia. So it was just, it was all very mind blowing. And like um, this idea that, that writing, being a, a storyteller, just a, being a, a, a science fiction writer was, so respected, you know, and, and just so um, loved, you know, yeah. that was what I, I came away from with that, which like, was really, it just, it was important. It was yeah. important. That's interesting because that's just as a bit of the history of the contest. That's why Owen Hubbard created the contest in 83 is because you see it out there, like the, the recognition of a science fiction or fantasy writer, you're postulating a future. You know, it's like, however you get, you, you've got a, either a sense of morality, you've got a sense of honor, respect. It's some type of a, it doesn't have to be moralizing, but you're telling a story and stories quite often have some type of a message in there, which is important. And that's something that, because that was the last genre he was writing there um, with his fiction during the golden age and then, in, and then his fantasy. So he created that contest because it's something that, um, it is important for the continuation, and right now we're about, I think, about 800 winners over the 36 years. And wow. one of our reviews we just got for volume 36 um, saying that this is Rise of the Future has done more for the furtherance of science fiction and fantasy than any other entity out there. And that's, I've experienced that just with, we've been doing this will be like the 85th podcast that we're going to be posting. And, but with this, the creative writing course and all these things that we've got, um, that's the whole purpose of it is to recognize talent out there because it's especially now as budgets get cut and now with yeah. you know the the COVID happening it's it's even harder and harder so this is really important to be able to recognize that and that's why I was so happy that we're able to have this talk because it is a, it is demonstrating what the what the purpose of the contest is and how it can actually accomplish that for others yeah so in um 2013 um, is when you became a judge for Writers of the Future. Mm -hmm. And between getting published in 2013, I know we've met a couple times, I think at Comic-Con, um, you were there yeah. as we were building up and we had our lunch at uh, that Mexican restaurant down there. And um, so how'd your career go then after 
So then after Rise of the Future, then between... Um, between after 2013 or before? After Clarion and Rise of the Future and... Yeah, yeah it's, it's, um, it's, been, it's been continuous. You know, at that time, you know, I, I, I got my PhD. Yeah. I wanted to get my PhD and then I was a... Uh, and then I taught at Chicago State University. Then I went on to teach at the University of Buffalo. And between then, it was, you know, it's, it's all been it's all been a journey. I've always been, you know, I've been, you know, I've always written full time, even when I was teaching full time and doing other things full time. So it's, it's just been like a gradual, gradual growth, gradual journey, you know, it's it's been a journey and that's, that's, you know, that's how it feels. It's just like slowly, a slow, a slow rise. It's been, it's been gradual for me. It hasn't been instant. Yeah. Right. No, but it's definitely a, it's a stable continuing to, to grow that I've seen. And then I wanted to um, briefly talk about, you know, your journey and that of like Octavia Butler, because I know you've posted about her several times. And she was, when I met her originally back in 2005, she had agreed to become a judge for Writers of the Future. She had back in um, volume nine, she wrote an article that was published, I think that was 1993. She wrote an article called Fuhrer Scribendi, and um, it was later republished in this edition of Cold Blood. And um, she was very positive about the contest, and was, um, she, was, um, she was so nice, and we talked about Rise of the Future and, and why she supported it. But she was... Um, such an amazing person and just she told me her story how she started she just was reading and reading and reading and then evolved into writing how is it that she was such an inspiration for you yeah for me it's 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 interesting because like i discovered octavia's work in my opinion late um and i discovered her around the time that just before writers of the future week it was at clarion Wow. So it was like it's all that time period was very pivotal for me. It's so yeah. necessary. But like um, I discovered her at Clarion when we went to the bookstore. I was walking through the science fiction and fantasy section and there was a cover that was um, that was facing out and it had a black woman on the cover. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, I have. N-. And I, that was it was in that moment that I realized I'm like, wait. I have never seen a cover with a black woman on the cover, you know, um, in the science fiction and fantasy section. I've never seen that. And I bought it because of that. Like that was because I didn't know who Octavia Butler was and all that. And then I went on to read it and my mind was blown because the main character, her name was Anyawu and that's an Igbo name and I'm Igbo and I understood exactly what that name was. And it starts off in pre-colonial Nigeria before Nigeria was Nigeria. And like, and this woman is long lived. And it was just, it blew like the, the moment I read that the first few pages, I was hooked. Yeah. And so then I went on to, and that, that book turned out to be wild seed. And I went on to um, read everything that she had written after that. Like her, her science fiction was just huge to me. And at the time, yeah, at the time I was writing Windseekers, which was about this, you know, basically this, this Nigerian Igbo woman who was in pre-colonial Nigeria who was very angry and mean and she had the ability to fly and being ostracized from her village. Like 
I was writing this character. Now, I remember as I was writing this character, I was thinking, I haven't, you know, seen anything published that was like that. And it didn't bother me, but it was just something I knew. And then mm -hmm. I read Wild Seed and I remember thinking, wow, okay, so, so this does happen. You know, this is, this is possible. So like discovering her work was just, it was, it was really, it was a pivotal thing for me as well. Like yeah. discovering Tiva's work was just, I mean, still is, she, she's so much. And, and, and not just that, it's like even her style of writing. Yeah. Her style of writing was, it's, it's clean, it's sparse, um, it grabs you immediately, does not like, so yeah, she was, she's important. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> important. <laughs> the reason why I brought her up is because after you won and reading your story, I was so reminded of Octavia. So I just, you know, I was thinking that you're going to make it because I was really looking forward to having you be a judge. And so I, I had that in my mind for years before I finally made the ask. You know, just following your career and just we'd go and chat and just, you know, going along, going on. And I said, OK, good. We're good. So I was so happy that you made that because it was just it reminded me so much of Octavia. And for me, it was such a loss when she when she passed. Um, yeah. But for every for a lot of people, I know it was a loss. But um, anyway, so I was very happy to be able to make that ask and you accepted. <laughs> so um, now in. 2013, as part of becoming a judge, you wrote an essay um, that was published in volume 29 called um, The Sport of Writing. And in it, I'm going to, I had, I've tagged a few um, of your quotes in here, which I thought were significant here. And you say, um, Nearly a decade passed before I realized the lesson in this experience. And this was your having been a tennis player. Um, just as in sports, when writing creatively, if you don't love the craft and art of it, you'll never experience this pure form of success. Yet when you do have this love, you realize that pure success does not come from fame or fortune. It grows from that love. So I thought that was really, really nice what you said there. So can you explain that a little bit more for me? Yeah. I mean, there's a, um, boy, it, it's so much like the, to to do so, I don't, I'm speaking in general, I'm like generalizing, and of course, everyone has different experiences, but in my experience, uh, to do something great and to create something great, there has to be that, like, the, the work that goes into it requires so much that if you don't love it, I just, I just question how you can even, uh, like, how you can even access the access those things that will allow you to get to that point and create that great thing. You have to really, truly love it. I mean, I think about, I think about um, in sports and it, when, when writing, like both of those, there's something, there's an aspect of work in, in both of those that like intensity, like mm -hmm. an intense kind of work that in order to do it, if you don't love like deeply, purely love what it is that you're doing, I cannot see how you can operate at that level, at that level to create this thing without damaging yourself. Right. You know, if you're doing something that, well, if, you're, if you're putting in that intensity for something that you don't love, I feel like it will damage you. But if you're putting that intensity for something that you do love, like only good things will come from it. Good. Well, that makes sense. And then... Later in this essay, you wrote, 
If you fear something, you give it power over you, says a North African proverb. So how does that fit in? I mean, fear, fear is an interesting thing. Fear is something, I found fear to be very useful. I found fear to be the thing that unlocks the best stories that I've written. I find fear to be the thing that unlocks um, the best, like in terms of sports, when I've, when I've uh, performed at my highest level, there's always fear there. Mm -hmm. But like, so fear, it, fear can be a tool. Fear can be a doorway, but fear can also be, also be like if you let fear if you let fear infect you as opposed to you figuring out how to how to harness the fear if you let it infect you you know it will it will just kind of it will destroy you it will, yeah. it will prevent you from even getting near where you need to get to so like fear to me i don't see fear as necessarily a negative thing but if you let it infect you it can definitely be the most negative thing so that's that thing we're talking about. Give it gives you it has power over you then. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then the one last point in this essay is Nettie's rule number one: <laughs> don't look a novel in the eye until you're done with the first draft. So let's talk about Nettie's rule number one. <laughs> There's nothing truer than that. Like, I mean, I'm like in that right now. I'm working on a novel and I'm not looking it in the eye. When I say don't look it in the eye. And it's something that I hear with a lot of new writers. A lot of new writers will, before they even get to finishing the novel or even starting the novel, they will look the novel in the eye. And when they look it in the eye, they get too, in, they, they get intimidated by the, because the look, a novel can give you, let's personify a novel. Yeah, sure. Not looking a novel in the eye is like looking into an abyss. It's like, it's like looking into the, the, it's like looking into the eye of a, uh, a spirit like if you look into that eye when you're not ready you will you will run away screaming you know <laughs> so like like don't look on a literal level don't think if you want to write a novel don't think i want to write a novel just start it and keep going don't look it just don't look it in the eye just keep keep going keep creating keep creating and then get to the end once you get to the end then, or it, it doesn't necessarily have to be the very end, but it can be like the last, get three fourths done at least. Then you can look at it and say, hey, I'm writing a novel. And this is what, because you're almost at the end. That's what I mean by that. But, it, yeah. but if, you, if you try to put the whole idea of a novel, like hold the whole idea of a novel in your mind at the same time, you will get intimidated and you will not want to do it because that is years of work and like years and lots of time and energy and stress and all of that. It, it's, it's, it can be done in pieces, but you don't want to think about the whole thing at the same time. Right. Okay. Well, that's, that's good. And it was a very good graphic presentation of that <laughs> rule number one. <laughs> and I will use that then to, uh, to bridge over now. So let's your, What's your writing habits like? We'll get into all the different fields you're into, but not how much time do you spend a day writing? Or is it, is it time or is it words? It's like, it's more than that. In, in these days of COVID, it's become weird. Yeah. It's like, it's become weird because I'm home all, like I'm home more than ever. And um, so there can be times where I'm just writing for hours and hours and hours. And then there can be times where I get up and do, go do something else. And, um, but but the, first you have to understand what is writing because writing isn't always sitting and typing or writing by hand or whatever, however you 
put it on the page. It's not always the putting on the page part. Right. Um, for example, even today, I'm at a certain point in the novel that I'm working on and I, I need to write, but the writing will be sitting and staring at the wall, like sitting and waiting. And then it comes and then I scribble some, like some notes down and then let that sit. And then eventually I'll sit down and, and put whatever on the page. Like that whole process is writing, all right. of it. The sitting and staring at the wall, the going and, and cooking something so that I can think, like just the way it all comes together is all writing. So how much of the day do I spend writing? Probably about 80% of the day <laughs> is, spent, is spent writing. And like, what are my, what are my writing habits? Um, it, it changes every day, but it, it changes every day, but I get a lot of writing done. Right. I get a lot of write a lot of writing done, but it changes. It's different every day. Uh, like some days, I'll wake up in the morning and just start writing, like typing, um, the the typing part of writing. Other days, I'll work on emails. I dilly dally all day, all day. I'll go on on the treadmill for three hours. <laughs> I just get restless and go outside, and then and then midnight will hit, and then I'm writing for three hours straight, like typing, typing, writing for three hours. Right. Like so, it's um my schedule. Like I don't, I couldn't describe my schedule, but I get stuff done. Yeah, that, it's, it's that chaos. Totally. Organized chaos. <laughs> so, has writing always been your profession, or was it? Did it go from avocation to vocation at some point? Granted, you went to school and you had your whole. But then, did you ever have another day job that writing was supplemented, and then you flipped over, or how did that work? That transition. Um, writing has always been like a primary thing for me, even when I was like, even when I was working on my PhD and and writing papers and teaching and all of that, um, I've always written in the background, like I've just always, always. Ever since I started writing that, you know, ever since I started writing, I've always written, you know, it's, it's yeah. part of what I do. So there's that. Um, but, I, you know, I've been a professor as well, yeah. you know, finished my, um, finished my PhD and then went on to be a be a professor, but I was always writing during that. There was never, there was no time where I put it aside to do something else. So like writing and then anything else that I do is, I don't know how to describe it, but writing's always been at the front. It's been yeah. at the forefront, you know. At what point did you stop being a professor? What time did you, at what yeah. point did you stop teaching? Um, 2017, 2017, but that was when it, everything kind of got to a certain point where I had to. I was doing so much that I couldn't sustain it. Like I was, I was, um, I was a an associate tenured professor at the University of Buffalo. Right. I was doing speaking engagements full time. Like there was one month where I was in like I was on uh, four continents <laughs> within six weeks while teaching full time, and and I was writing full time. You know, I wrote like Binti and the Book of Phoenix. All those things were written while I was teaching. Um, and I was just, you know, and then the, mo the movie stuff started kind of, started kind of starting. <laughs> so I was like doing all this stuff all at the same time. And it just got to a point where I couldn't sustain it anymore. The main thing that happened was when I had to turn down HBO twice the, the HBO writer's room for a show that I really liked. I had to turn them down twice because I was teaching. And I'm like, 
I just was like, what am I doing? I gotta, you know, I gotta see this other thing through. Teaching will always be there. I can return to it when I'm ready, but I gotta see this other thing through. And so that, so in 2017, that was when I decided to just go full time and see what happens. Right. And obviously we, we're seeing what's happened. So that was yeah. <laughs> So yeah. now you're, you're writing in multiple universes. Let's start, first of all, talk about your novels. Um, so you got, you talk about Binti and we've got Windseeker. So the, how do those things progress and how do you switch from one to the other? Cause they're kind of they're similar, but they're not. Yeah. It's, uh, it's kind of like the way that I, it's kind of like my writing schedule. It's organized chaos, you know, like, because when I wrote Binti, I didn't know I was going to write Binti. I didn't know, like, I wasn't contracted to write a novella. I just, I didn't know. And then the story came to me and I just sat and wrote the thing. It was like that. And so, and I, and I tend to, I prefer to, when it comes to novels, I prefer to write it before I sell it. So I'm that kind of writer. Like, yeah. I'm like, I want to have the thing written or at least have an idea of it before I sell it. So I will write, I just, I write. When I left the University at Buffalo, literally right after I left, that was when Marvel came sniffing around. <laughs> and, and suddenly I'm writing stuff for Marvel. And and so like, that's it. How like, did that writing happen? So, the, so like writing the Shuri now, getting into that, now you're the Shuri world too. Yes. So how did they know to sniff you out as compared to a regular person? Yeah, it was, um, I think there was a, 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 a comics writer who was like, Nettie might be good at writing comics. So it sure he didn't come around until I, at first I wrote, um, there were a few things that I did with, um, for Marvel before, before they offered me Shuri. It was like a progressive thing. Yeah. So first I did a short in the, in the Venom universe. I did a short for them. They liked what I did then. And then um, I was invited to write um, either, it was either the Dora Milaje, which are the, the guards for, the Black Panther and then Black Panther or the other way around. I can't remember which came first, but like, so I did, I did a limited series of both of those. And then they liked that. And they, and they realized, Oh, Nettie can handle our very tough deadlines. Cause Marvel has very tough, fast, fast deadlines. So, and then eventually they offered me, offered me Shuri. And so like, it was, it was interesting because, yeah, I was doing, I was writing in multiple universes. I was writing in, like, I was doing Binti, and then I was doing, um, God, I can't even remember what I was doing. I was doing a whole bunch of things, <laughs> different, different novels and different stories, and, and, like, you know, and each of those had their own universes, and then um, the Marvel universe is a different, like, already established universe, so I had to write in that. And so, so yeah, I was like, and that's a already established set world where people know these characters, they're beloved characters. And, and so I had to learn that it was a lot of juggling. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of juggling. And, and it's something that I've become pretty good at over, over time. It's just, it's, yeah, it's you're writing uh, your universe and then writing somebody else's universe and being true to both, which seems to yeah. be a real good skill to have. Yeah. And, and it's a skill that I picked up during my PhD. I can definitely say that because during my PhD, I had my, um, I had my daughter, like my daughter was born right at the beginning of my PhD program. So I have an infant and then I was teaching full time as well. And then I was reading like four novels at the same time, you know, and jug- and keeping those separate in my mind. Uh-huh. So it was like, you know, I, I had to learn how to really, um, 
multitask and, and compartmentalize and juggle worlds. And I never got any of the, the novels mixed up, you know, in my mind. So I was able, so that was when I learned how to do that. And so now the skill is definitely coming in handy these days. Definitely coming in handy. <laughs> yeah. Heaven forbid that Binti all of a sudden starts flying and. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I could see that. Though. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, in terms of uh, advice to other aspiring writers, now mm -hmm. this, this podcast goes, it's, it's global. So, um, and we have, like I mentioned to you before we started the interview, we have this um, Writers of the Future online workshop as well, which we're promoting to people to help them to continue and, and follow through and write their story, submit it. And um, hopefully we get some more winners from you know, from, from uh, Africa. We've got a writing group in South Africa that's using Writers of the Future right now. It's about 130 students there. But we're working on how to grow it. Um, so what advice do you have for the aspiring writer to, you know, from, what, from your perspective? Yeah, I, I, the first, a first piece of advice is always write. Like, like don't uh, sit there talking about it and, and whatever, like, do, do the work, do the work. I mean, that, that's really where the stories come from. The stories don't come from social media and, and like all that. Okay? Like sit down and do the work. So that's, that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is to write what you want to write. Like don't be afraid. Of, like if you're writing something and you don't, you've never seen anything out like it, don't be afraid to don't, don't, don't think, oh, you know, I've never seen this before, therefore I shouldn't do it. Or, oh, like that thing over there is really successful, so let me just do that instead of writing the thing that's from my heart. No, write the thing, that's, write the thing that is moving you. Write the thing that, that is yours. Don't be afraid of what is yours. Right. Um, don't be afraid to experiment as well. Like, I, I keep coming back to this whole idea of I have, I've never seen it before, therefore, who wants to read that? Like, who wants to read my story? I hear a lot of new writers saying that, and I'm just like, that shouldn't even cross your mind. And yeah. that's where this whole idea of you should love what it is that you're doing first. First, like, your love for what you're doing comes first, not other people not validation from other people. Right. You know, you validate yourself because when you put your stuff out there, there's always going to be one, someone who's going to hate on it. Two, there's always going to be an audience for anything that you write. There's an audience for everything out there. So like, and, and three, like there's a, there's a, and I've kind of spoken on this already. There's a work aspect to writing. You know, it's tough. It takes a lot of time, energy, stressful, um, and, and editing can be really grueling. You have to be meticulous. You want to make things really great, perfect, as, as, as perfect as it can be, whatever. So that's a lot of energy to put into it. If you don't love what it is that you're doing, it's going to seem like agony. Right. If you love what you're doing, you're really going to, that, that work aspect is not going to be that much of a problem. So like on a practical level, loving what you do will make the writing just easier. <laughs> the process will be easier. Loving what you do, being interested in what you do, it being yours will make it, you know, just makes it a lot, a lot easier. So like, those are, those are my, um, my main things. I can go on and on, but like, you know, write your stories and don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to tell your stories either. It's like, um, there's always going to be risk. It's and, and, and like, like I said before, some of the, 
the, um, my, my best stories have often come from fear. They've been from writing about those things that I'm afraid of. And I, uh, and, and I'll know, like, if I'm scared to write, like Binti, for example, I have a fear of outer space. I'm scared of space. I'm scared of leaving the earth because you die. Outside. You leave Earth and you die. You need all this apparat- these apparatuses to keep you alive. That terrifies me. And so I was like, okay, I'm scared of this. I need to write this. That's why I was like, oh, okay, so I'm going to write my first space opera. I'm going to write something set in space. Oh, my God. And so that was what, part of what led me to writing, to writing that, like looking at what I was afraid of. So like, if you're afraid of it and if, you're, if it's something that just makes, gives you the it, makes you feel a certain way you probably should write about it you know and see see where it goes face it facing it and doing it on paper is very exciting for everyone to read yeah no that was that was a great story because it was such a different twist for you going into space opera like wow fantasy fantasy fantasy, and all of a sudden fantasy taking a space opera (laughs) twist is like wow that was what but it was (laughs) You have your your basic realism that you've got in your fantasy stories, which is very real. It's very gritty. Your people are, it's like they're there. And space opera quite frequently doesn't get into that. Yeah. Yours does. Yeah. Most of that was great. So um, I'm not going (laughs) to ask the question that I see people ask all the time. When's the next one going to come out? (laughs) I can say it. Yeah. (laughs) I'm ready whenever it does. (laughs) So, anything else you'd like to say to um, the aspiring writer? Hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, read widely. Read widely. Like, you, and and don't genre yourself. Like, if like, don't say, okay, I'm writing. I want to write science fiction, and therefore write that. Write the story that you want to write. Don't worry about category, and then see where it goes, because that's how you write new things. You know, when you're thinking about, when you're putting the constraints of, um, of genre onto what you're doing, it's going to constrain it. You're going to constrain it. So, so yeah, like, don't think so much about that. It will go where it's going to, let the story guide you where it needs to go. Let the story guide you. Um, I've written characters that have done things that I've hated. They've done it, like, as I'm typing. I'm, like, trying to control them, but they keep doing it, and they do it. Like, who fears death? Main character did a lot of things that I could not stand, but I had to let it, let it ride. But also, yes, read widely, read yeah. widely. Don't just read those things that you want to write like. Read, read widely. And also, it's okay to love some kind of um, love an author and not write like the author. Which, right. I mean, I know that sounds weird, but I see a lot of that where, you know, new writers are just like, okay, I love this author, so therefore I want to write like this author. It's okay to just love the author, you know. It's, it's to be perfectly yourself. fine. Yeah, to be yourself. I think that's really the, the overarching thing that I'm saying over and over mm-hmm. is to be yourself. Right. Be yourself and, and let, let that come forth and, and, and see what happens. Good. So now if somebody's not familiar with you as an author, what would you recommend to uh, start? I know what I would say, but I'm not the one being interviewed. So I'm asking you, what would you recommend that people read? Oh, God, I never even know how to answer that. Because like, I've done so many different kinds of things. So it really depends. Like, I mean, if you're like, if you like young adults, and you want something light and happy, Zara the Windseeker, that's my first novel. If you want something that's really dark and, and heavy, and um, based 
in realism, even though a lot of my work is, but like who fears death would be the way to go with that. If you want something that's shorter, Binti, which is a novella. So I'm like, I'm just all, if you, if you're very angry, the book of Phoenix, (laughs) that one, (laughs) the book of Phoenix, you're feeling angry, which a lot of us have good reason to feel angry, (laughs) but like, yeah, book of Phoenix. So yeah, I mean, it really depends on what, like what you're in the mood for at the time. Because there's a bit of, there's like a lot of, you got something a lot. for everybody. You got something for everybody. <laughs> so if someone wants to be able to find you, uh, what's the best way that you recommend? Is it Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, webpage? Um, you recommend? All three of those. Okay, <laughs> or four of the, all yeah. four of those. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm fairly active on, yeah, on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And then I have my, my website, which I often need to update a little more. But I'm, I always have stuff happening. So it's hard to keep that thing updated. I try. I try. But yeah, I'm, I'm fairly active on, on, you know, those main three. Nettiacorafor.com? Is that what that oh, is? Oh, Nettie.com. N-N-E-D-I.com. Yeah. Good. Well, thank you very much. This has been great speaking with you. I'm glad we're finally able to get this done. I know a lot of people are really looking forward to listening to you. Awesome. Awesome. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Writers of the Future podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Player FM, iHeart, and Spotify. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction and fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Nettie. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.